Hey, hey, everybody. It's Nick Kolakowski, and this is Noir on the Radio. Uh, my guest tonight is Sean Cosby. His work has appeared in numerous anthologies and magazines. His story, Slant Six, was selected as a distinguished story in 2016's edition of the Best American Mystery Stories, which is really awesome. His new novel, My Darkest Prayer, is out January 19 from Intrigue Publishing. It's about Nathan Waymaker, a former Marine and Sheriff's deputy, who investigates the death of a local minister. Because nothing is ever as it seems in noir world, the situation quickly escalates until Nathan is dealing with everything from wannabe gangsters and porn stars to a treacherous preacher. Hey, Sean. Hey, good to be here. Hey, yeah, no, glad to have you on. So, one thing that was that was really intriguing me was that it, it's it's it's... Based on your bio, I mean, you've been a bouncer, you've been a mortician's assistant, a construction worker, pretty much every, you know, kind of thing that you would think would provide good grist for writing fiction. What jobs have influenced <laughs> you the most? Like what, I mean, when I read your short stories, I can like see the DNA of what I think is, you know, for example, you know, kind of the mortician stuff, you know, sometimes I can, I feel that mm -hmm. there's a bit of real life construction worker, et cetera. But what, what do you pull most of your inspiration from? I think the biggest inspiration as far as my real life was more my, my childhood than anything else. Uh, okay. I grew up um, really, really poor. I mean, yeah. we were we were so far below the poverty line that didn't realize there was a poverty line. And oh, so, uh, uh, <laughs> and so I, I, I've told the story at VoucherCon, but yeah, I didn't have indoor plumbing until I was 15. So wow. um, I grew up around a lot of people who were struggling. And sometimes those people struggled to work four and five jobs and Sometimes those people uh, struggle to, you know, move a trunk load of weed. And so I kind of was uh, immersed in that as a kid. Um, my I was uh, my mom was a single mom, and we lived with my grandmother. Um, she worked as a crab uh, for people that are not um, familiar with the Chesapeake Bay. She worked as a crab picker, so she uh, worked in a factory that do uh, pick the meat out of the crabs. And uh, my grandfather worked for VDOT. He was a construction worker. And I grew up, you know, uh, working around the house, chopping wood, cutting grass for neighbors and anything I could do to make, you know, money. And so I also had relatives, cousins, um, I come from a big family who, you know, were running moonshine in the eighties. And wow. when, you know, weed and, and drugs started making their way down South, they, they kind of fell into that. But as I like to say, they were never, they were never really successful drug dealers. They were more, they, they usually made just enough money to blow it on a Friday night. And that's just, I, and I'm fascinated with what drives people, to crime and and the more uh, prosaic crime, the more bucolic crime is, is what really gets me going as far as my writing. Because I grew up around people who were in desperate situations and desperate times that caused for des call for def desperate measures. That's the the thing that always sort of astounded me about kind of the media and all the rest of that. Like you watch movies and stuff, and every single drug dealer in it is driving a Ferrari and they're top of the world. But I mean, I'm in, I'm in the same boat. I grew up I grew up in DC in the '80s and '90s, and you know all the the weed dealers and so on that I knew. Where, I mean, you know, they, they made decent money, you know, I mean, you know, granted there's a substantial downside to that whole lifestyle, but <laughs> they, they definitely, nobody was rolling in it. I mean, it definitely didn't really seem right. like the risk to reward ratio was all really all that synced up. Yeah. And I think, uh, what I saw, the ones, the guys that I knew who did, you know, I had a, I had a relative who, uh, he was, uh, by default, the local uh, kingpin. And so he did buy a Jaguar and then two weeks later he got arrested because you don't have a job. So how the hell are you reporting a Jaguar? And so um, the guys that kind of sustained it were the small time guys. And I always picked up on this idea that even in the South, 
you 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 can't make a living as a drug dealer unless you're as my friends would say unless you move in serious weight and it's it's hard to get to that level and so um growing up in like said eight I did the same thing I grew up in the 80s and 90s you saw people doing a multitude of quasi illegal and illegal things and then also you saw people in us my grandfather and my uncles were just hard working guys you know they'd yeah. work all day construction and then they'd take jobs on the weekend cutting grass or working on us, you know, cutting down trees or working on a farm, bailing hay. And so I saw both sides of that. I saw the dichotomy of poverty and the, what I like to call the camaraderie of poverty as well. And so um, I kind of grew up in the middle of that. Yeah, no, that's a great phrase. And I mean, the thing in your writing that shines through so spectacularly is, you know, you, you get all these small time people and like, I mean, they're tough. They're they're tough as hell. But I mean, like you know, slit the belly, for example. I mean, the 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 the, the main guy in that they 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 operate on this code. There's this sense of they have this sort of structure that they live by underneath, which I, I always thought was really sort of fascinating because most writers don't sort of take the they they focus all on the hard ass aspect of it, and they're not really focusing on okay, like everybody has a code. What's this guy's code? Like, what's you know, what's sort of the schism that he's living by? Right. Um, that story is interesting because, to me anyway, I, the guy, the main guy, is, is the grandfather of a, of a character that is uh, off scene for most of the story. For anybody that hasn't read it, and um, he's based on my granddad. My granddad wow. was a tough guy, you know, and he was a he was a dude that, as uh, my grandfather used, to, my grandmother used to say, he was a guy that talked with his fists a lot, not with her, but he had a code, he had a, a sense of honor. You know, he didn't curse in the house. He didn't, you know, he he was he didn't think men should put their hands on women and you know and if you stepped out of line he, he was willing and able to handle it and so i was i have a great admiration to him he's it, my first book is dedicated to him and so I, I i i looked at him as a role model but i also knew that some of his uh code and some of his his the way he viewed life came from a very tough upbringing a very hard upbringing upbringing that i couldn't even imagine you know as chris rock said you know he grew up in a time of that real racism not that i can't get a cab uh bullshit so yeah. i i had a great deal of respect for him and he's been an influence as far as multiple characters but that that story was fun to write i like that i like that story i i've always i've had this philosophy uh that uh i i i, I believe that everybody hurts if you have to sum up my writing philosophy what i'm trying to say yeah is that everybody hurts even even the hard asses hurt you know even the tough guys hurt you know and so you know, even Michael Corleone cries for his dad, and so I, I'm fascinated with that that identity, that, that the idea that you know, underneath this hard exterior, is still a human being. And so that informs a lot of what I write about. Oh, definitely. I mean, or your other story in Tough, which I really loved in August, and everybody who's listening, and you absolutely need to leave, to to read this the the grass beneath my feet story, which is which is incredible, and that's that's got a lot of pain in it too. I mean, you know, the, the in terms mm -hmm. of the whole the whole funeral home and all the rest of it, and that mm -hmm. that really comes through. I I I dig the ending of that story so much. Um, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, but that's um. <laughs> That definitely took it. I, I wasn't quite sure what I was expecting going into that, but I mean, I, I really liked how that one ended. And the, I think that that story too is a is another story where again, it's the the, the aspect of pain of I, I, you know, there's a term that gets thrown around a lot, and I'm not uh, dismissing it, but the term toxic masculinity. And I believe I fully believe there is a toxic toxic masculinity, but we worry a lot about what toxic masculinity is doing to others, and not not so much what it's doing to the person who's living it. And the person who's experiencing it, experiencing it, and so I, I'm fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by the idea of 
honor and codes and justice and masculinity and what it means to be a man in in society today. And, and that story too is influenced by uh, some real life situations. Uh, like I said, I, I work at a funeral home yeah. and I've, I've, I've experienced that. I've seen prisoners come and see their loved ones. Um, and it's, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's heartbreaking to see someone that hasn't seen their mom for 15 years. And the only time they're going to see him is now she's in a coffin. And so it, it kind of stuck with me and I wanted to explore that um, and kind of explore it through the prism of, of a crime story. Yeah, I mean, in that character, the 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 guy who's central in that story, he does come and he cries, you know, and his his whole body shakes and mm-hmm. and, and so on. And then yeah, mm-hmm. but and then, but I I just like how you get that duality in there that he comes in and he has this moment, and then you know, all not again, not to spoil it, but then you know, some very crunchy things happen at that point, or some kind of very stabby things rather. Um, <laughs> you know, it's great. Yeah, yeah, my uh, my uh, my mama doesn't like that story, but. <laughs> Yeah, it's always it's it's, it's it's parents are funny. I mean, my I, my last book, like um, my grandma read. My my grandma's a very um, religious woman, and um, she, you know, and I so I'm always kind of hesitant when I talk to her about it because you know she does the grandmother thing where she says that she likes the book and so on. But right. in the back of my head, I'm always wondering. Yeah, sure, you read you know Jack Reacher books and things like that, but you know, like, what do you really think of this? And at one point, she. Um, <laughs> She said, like, you know, just I should think about in the next book, like maybe ending with the characters turning towards Jesus or something like that, just to, to, to balance it out. I wasn't quite sure what to say to that. I'm like, no, they usually end up dead. Like, that's not usually how this works. My mom's uh, <laughs> my mom's one constructive criticism since she's read some of my work and stuff. And she read the first draft of uh, My Darkest Prayer. She run the, read the first draft of my second book that's uh, currently being shopped around by uh, uh uh, Josh Getzler from HSG oh, yeah. and Associates. Yeah. Uh, she uh, she said, uh, everybody seems to get hit in the face in yourself. Like, <laughs> you didn't grow up like that. Everybody's getting cracked in the face. I have a affinity for uh, improvised weapons. So I, 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 I feel like, again, growing up, I grew up behind a bar. Uh, a woman oh, wow. turned loving lady in the South, a shot house. It was a illegal bar. They never liquor license. Uh, there was... Um, it was a, a mobile home that was had been, I don't know how to say, but grafted onto a large metal storage building. And so it was this basic illegal spot where people came and bought beer, moonshine, and whiskey that uh-huh. was, you know, dropped off the back of a truck. And so I grew up in, in behind that place, and we, me and my brother, was sneaking there as you know, wet behind the ears, thirteen year olds. And you know, I saw a lot of what I term uh, inconsequential violence. What I mean is, I saw a lot of fights where everybody walked away. Yeah. You know, I did, it, it wasn't the age of uh, everybody popping the cap in someone. And so you did see that kind of old school, if you want to call it, maybe Neanderthal ideal, where, okay, we fought this Friday, and then I'll see you Saturday, and I'll buy you a beer. And so I saw a lot of people get hit with pool sticks and billiard balls and bo- and beer bottles. And, um, you know, and I, I learned early on that it wasn't like in the movie. Somebody hits you with a 40-ounce bottle, it doesn't shatter. No. And so um, I, I try to use that, incorporate that into my writing when I do have to be violent. I mean, and, and you know, violence is a, a, another thing that fascinates me. Not so much the act of violence, but what drives people to it and what makes people pick up that weapon or, or act yeah. in, out in a certain way. The other, the other thing, too, that I think you do really nicely is, um, like, in real life when people fight – 
you know, it's, it's like one or two blows and somebody's down and it's gone in like, you know, five seconds or whatever. I mean, it's always so weird to me in books. I, I am guilty of this too. And I, I have done this in the past, but like <laughs> when you make a fight drag on for like 10 or 15 pages, whatever, and you're choreographing every blow and whatnot, and it's just not like that in real life. I mean, it's exciting for the readers, but there is a real dichotomy, I think a lot between how real fights run, you know, and then kind of how cinematic mm-hmm. or, or book fights run, which, which it sort of pulls me out of books what? sometimes. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I love, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Lee Chow in, oh, nice. in Florida. I went to my first Buchicon early this year, and he's yeah. such a lovely guy. He's so nice. And, you know, he, he basically acknowledged that, yeah, my fights aren't super realistic, but, you know, hey, it's fiction. And I, I agree with that, and it's something I think you can do from time to time. But I guess me personally, being a bouncer, have my own share of bar fights. I, I'm, you know, I've, I'm missing a knuckle on my left hand from a bar fight when I was in my twenties. And so, um, I, I know how actual physical fights go. I've been in enough of them. And I think when I'm like with Bond darkest prayer, there are two big fight scenes. The first one is sort of the Jack Reacher born identity esque fight. It's about a page and a half and it's my guy against four guys. But, these four guys are in bad shape. You know, two of them are drug addicts. Yeah. One of them is real skinny. And the fourth one doesn't really want to fight anyway. And so I, I've seen that kind of fight work its way out. And so uh, the biggest thing for me was when I write those kind of scenes, I want there to be uh, sub- subsequent issues from the fight. You know, he his hands ache. His left yeah. hand is swollen from punching somebody. And you see that later on in the book, a few chapters later, his hand is still swollen. And then the next fight scene, he really gets jacked up. And so, you know, for the rest of the book, everyone that sees him, like, what the hell happened to you? <laughs> and so that kind of, that kind of realism is something that, you know, again, I, I grew up in a way, in a, in, a, in a community where, you know, somebody got a black eye on a Sunday, they still had it that Tuesday, no matter how much red meat you put on it. And so, oh, yeah. um, but I'm guilty of that in my writing. I think, you know, I think everybody is. I think, you know, I think personally, I love writing in a cinematic style. Mm-hmm. I think cinematically. And so, yeah, you know, that scene sometimes, and I've had to scale back some stuff with like, it sounds really good, but nobody's going to buy it. And so I'm definitely aware of that. Yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, if, if you get tuned up, like you just, I mean, the, the, yeah, you're, you're not going to like pop up the next morning and, and you know, kind of hop out of bed and, and be totally normal and not and not spend the rest of your day <laughs> limping around pissing blood. It's just, just not something that doesn't exactly. happen. Exactly. The, um, yeah, you feel those punches and bruises. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. It's fine. I mean, and that's the that's the thing about Lee Child too. I mean, I I forget the the last Reacher book that I read, but the final fight has Reacher versus two or three guys, but they have some sort of radiation sickness or heavy metal sickness or something like that from mining. So he's able to like take <laughs> on these three dudes who combined are probably like a thousand pounds. Just you know, and he he, right. he handicaps it a little bit, but it's not. Um, it's it's definitely more on the cinematic side of that scale than than realistic by any stretch of the imagination, but it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, there's nothing wrong. I mean, I think that's the thing I've, I've learned with the writing community and, and the crime writing community is that there's room for everybody. You know, there's room for the hyper-realistic, two-minute, brutal, Krav Maga fight, and then there's room for the more, you know, esoteric, you know, James Bondy, you know, born identity, Liam Neeson fight. I think there's room for all of it. And I think, you know, you know what you're getting into, hopefully, when you buy the book and or, you know, you get the book. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't I, I don't feel a, a sense of snobbishness. There's, you know, that, oh, that's not realistic enough for me. No, no, okay. man, for it. You enjoy what you enjoy. As long as people are freaking reading, I don't care. 
So, yeah. you know. I, I think the thing about it too, like I, I didn't go to this, this past BoucherCon, but I went to the one in Toronto the year before that. And the thing that I was sort of eye-opening to me definitely was that, you know, you got one panel room where, you know, you've got the hard-boiled fiction people. And then in the next room over, you've got the people who are doing the Christian cozies. And then the room after that, you've got the people who are doing the chemistries. And it's all good. And they've all got their fan base yeah. and things like that. I don't – It's it, it weirds me out a little bit when people get super snotty about a genre that or a subgenre that they don't read. It's like if you don't read it, right. but it has its fans, I mean, like what's your problem? Like why are you why are you getting up in someone's yeah, room? like – I grew up reading English drawing room mysteries because my we went used to go to a thrift store that you could get ten paperback books for a dollar. Oh, that's and a good deal. That's point, nice. I guess somebody, yeah, somebody dropped off a bunch of English mysteries. So it was even Dorothy L. Sayers and and, and Agatha Christie and P.D. James. And so I grew up, you know, my first books were those guys. And then I switched on to I discovered Raymond Chandler and mm-hmm. uh, Ross McDonald and Chester Himes and folks like that. And so those those things kind of informed the way I, I didn't feel there was any uh, division between those. I mean, I like that type of mystery and I like this type of mystery. And it just, I never had that kind of hard and fast division between subgenres. Yeah. Agatha Christie's fun. I haven't read Agatha Christie in a long time, but I remember reading them when I was a kid and they're, um, I, I forget. Does every single one of her books end with basically everybody did it? I forget. I mean, at least two of them. I think, end that way. <laughs> a lot of her, <laughs> a lot of hers tend to have multiple assailants, yeah. but they're, it's, they're like, it's like a magic trick. Halfway through it, you know you're being fooled, but you're like, I, I just enjoy the process so much. I'm just going to read it, finish up, you know, the rest of the way. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then uh, some of the other writers from England that I enjoy, like, uh, you know, Dorothy L. Sayers is one of those. A lot of people don't read her anymore. She's not oh. as popular as she was in the, in the 30s and 40s, but Lord Peter Whimsey was her guy, and he was the beginning of the amateur uh British detective. He wasn't attached to the police. He wasn't quite as smart as Sherlock Holmes, but he wasn't quite as egotistical as Hercule Poirot. Yeah. And so his mysteries are very clever. And so, um, but then I, I did kind of fall into later on really getting heavy into like American noir, like Ed McBain and uh-huh. like I said, Raymond Chandler, Ross McDonald, those guys, and some of the, you know, the later um, noir guys, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of John D. McDonald. A lot of my darkest prayer is basically. If uh, it sounds gross, but if Travis <laughs> McGee and Easy Rollins and Spencer had a baby, <laughs> then that's that's who Nathan Waymaker would be. That's oh, that's wow. basically his who he. Is. Then, I mean, that's you know that's me saying. It. I don't know if I also think of that, but that's what I kind of had in mind when I created him because I wanted to. Uh, I, I'll tell you a real quick story how you yeah, came about. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Real quick. Yeah. So Todd Robinson, great guy. You know, mm-hmm. was published Thug was first up. I was my first teen yeah, yeah, crime story. Great. I love Todd. Big yeah. Katie Thug. He's my buddy. And um, I, uh, so uh, I got to go to New York uh, um, a couple years after that story got published. And I uh, got to meet him in person. And mm-hmm. uh, we went to Shade. Me and my, my lady went to Shade. Yeah. We were sitting there having some drinks. And, and he's talking to me. And he's like, you know, that that thick Boston, New York accent. So what uh, are you yeah. going to write next, Cosby? And I'm like, I don't know, man. I love to do a PI book, but... I said, I live in a small town. It just doesn't seem realistic. I've never bought the fact that you have a private eye who can make a living in a small town. Yeah. I, I just don't buy it. I don't. And so he was like, don't you work at a freaking uh, funeral home? And I'm like, yeah. He said, well, you got ready-made stories right there. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of sure. do. He's yeah. like, and he, he was like, yeah, he was like, just, he's like, just take your, take your guy and have him get involved with the people that come to the funeral home. And so it 
I'd never thought of it from that perspective. And so it flicked the light on in my head. And so I kind of had this idea of a, of a Travis McGee-esque character um, who was an amateur, who wasn't a, a, a private eye, who didn't have a license, who was kind of troubled. And so, um, and because I'm, you know, African-American and mm-hmm. I grew up in the South, I made him biracial. So his parents, his father's white and his mom's black. And so I wanted to do that as sort of a very subtle metaphorical nod to um, the uh, racial uh, yeah. dysphoria, if you will, in the South. And so, uh, and so I had him kind of, that kind of was the genesis of him, that he's this, you know, former sheriff deputy and he has some horrific thing that happened to him in his past and he's no longer a deputy and he's kind of down on his luck. And so he ends up at his cousin's funeral home because nobody else in town will hire him. And uh, hmm. as he's there over the course of time, you, you learn through the book that he's done little jobs here and there helping people out, maybe not strictly private detective work. He's helped a guy get his daughter, you know, out of a trap house in Richmond, or he's, uh, you know, um, put some hands on a dude that has been uh, touching little kids at yeah. a daycare. And so he's that kind of guy. And so that was the genesis for him. I wanted to, if nothing else, I guess it was, like I said, if I, I wanted to kind of, bring an easy Rollins type feel to it, but also have more, yeah, but also have more of a, uh, a rural experience with it. And I think that's kind of unique. I think there's not a lot of books that talk about the rural noir experience from African American perspective. Yeah, definitely not. And like the easy Rollins thing, I mean, it's, 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 it, it, it is, it sounds reminiscent of easy in the sense of, you know, easy is, is he gets laid off. He drives from jobs to jobs and the, the, the detective work is, you know, at least for a long time, kind of what he fits in amidst all this other turbulence in my life, but he's very much kind of within that Chandler era, like that forties era. So to put it for what you're mm-hmm. doing, kind of expanding to the contemporary rural, I mean, yeah, no, that's definitely a complete shift. Yeah. And then I think I, I want this story to be, it's, it's a love letter to where I grew up. I mean, I love my childhood home. I love the people, the characters, the individuals, the, the atmosphere of where it is and what makes it different from urban noir. I've had this discussion uh, many, many, many times over many, many glasses of whiskey with Eric <laughs> um, Pruitt. And um, <laughs> we talked about how the idea of noir used to be that it could only be in an urban environment because you could only... It seemed that some writers, some people, I wouldn't say writers, some critics thought you could only tap into the malaise, the, the ennui that is supposed to be integral to noir writing in the urban environment, in the <laughs> light of the city. You know, 8 million stories and the naked oh, yeah. city and so on and so forth. And I'm like, and, and we talked about it, it's like, but there's a sense of unease. There's a sense of, uh, of, of fear and loathing that exists in a rural area. And, and it's almost even more so because you know, everyone, you know, all their secrets, you know, all their, their, uh, faults and foibles. And so that pastoral noir, that rural noir, if you will, can be just as moving and just as, uh, emotionally uh, satisfying as the urban noir. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And so uh, you know, no, yeah. So that's what I was kind of. That's what I'm kind of hoping that I, I was able to do with the book. So no, and I think you're right. I mean, I write a lot of a lot of the noir I write is noir, rural noir for for kind of the same reasons. I and mean, you get like just kind of you know there there's a lot maybe it's because there's less people or whatever but i mean a lot of these issues do sort of get get brought to the fore and also i mean the other thing too i found about 
rural noir is that when you write an urban noir, your characters kind of have so many avenues to flee down and there's infrastructure and you can kind of get mm-hmm. lost in the crowd and stuff like that. But in rural noir, I mean like, you know, it's night and you're out in, you know, the woods and out in the back and, you know, and so on and things like mm-hmm. that. You got nowhere to run and there's no one to help you. And that sort of helps mm-hmm. with, you know, your whole like third act in terms of, you know, people mm-hmm. chasing your protagonist, whatever, shooting at him. Yeah, and I think that helps a lot. I mean, I think that it, it makes the story more exciting. And I think also it adds a sense of fear. Uh, yeah. There's a dark sense of foreboding that comes from, you know, uh, there's a scene in my darkest story, I'm not ruining it for anybody, but there's a scene that takes place at, because the location is on the Chesapeake Bay, it takes place at a marina in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's spooky as hell because there is no one around. This, like I said, because it's not the foot traffic that you may see in a city, you know, whatever's going to happen, it's going to go down. Nobody's going to intervene and stop it. Nobody's going to call the police. You know, even if they hear gunshots, um, you know, rifle shots in the, in the country is not that unusual. It, it, it'll take a machine gun for somebody to call the police. And so oh, yeah. I think that adds a definite, definite sense of foreboding to the story. Um, and also, I mean, it's just I, I know I feel comfortable in that environment. I feel comfortable writing about people that live in that environment because it's, it's what I grew up in. Yeah, I mean the Eastern Shore. I mean it's incredibly. I mean to, for the for anyone who's who's listening who's never been down in that whole area. Um, yeah, Eastern Shore. You can you can jog along the side of the road for miles and no one will ever see you or find you. I, I live like I said. I live near the Chesapeake Bay, and my my town is Gloucester, Virginia. That's where I was born and raised. I was born in Matthews, but I live in Gloucester, and yeah. they're all on Chesapeake Bay. And, and growing up, you know, there was this whole there was a, 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 a I guess a country myth. And if you ran afoul of certain people, you know, some of them watermen would take you out and you end up just bait in a crab pot and nobody will find you. Oh, yeah. No, crabs, will, so, crabs, yeah. crabs will pick you right out. They're not going to even find you. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so that, you know, those aspects are, as, as one of the characters say in, in, in My Darkest Prayer, there's a lot of abandoned wells and outhouses down here. So, oh, yeah, that's true. you know, do with that information what you will. Behind, <laughs> behind, behind wrecked houses, yeah, that no one's been inside in 20 or 30 years, just kind of by the side of the road there. Exactly, exactly. So did you, so you were talking about Todd and, and talking about PIs and things like that. Is that what inspired you to write the book or did, did sort of the impetus to move from short stories to writing this, did that come from something else and like Todd was just an accelerant? I mean, how did the process work where you woke up one day and decided to, to start working on something this long and this big? I wanted to write something. I wanted to, I, 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 I ultimately wanted to be a, a book book writer because yeah um i felt like i had more story to tell mm-hmm. and um and so i love short stories and i had a lot of you know i was very blessed to have some success with short stories and everything and um and so i wanted to, a little more room to stretch and i want a little more room to expound on some ideas that i had and some ideas that i wanted to express and so the idea of writing a book a longer version came up uh, in like the summer of 2013. And I just couldn't, like to me, writing a story is like go, finding a, the unlocked door in a house. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't find the door in. I didn't know how to do it. And then that conversation with Todd was like, oh man, there it is. And so once, it was almost like a, uh, like I said, a watershed moment. Once that light went off, everything just fell out of it. It was like, okay, I can do this. He can work at a funeral home. He has a past with the sheriff's department. So he has investigative skills. Um, he's former, he's the former Marine, so he can take care of himself physically. Um, the funeral home is a great central point for stories for people coming in and out. And I'll tell you something, I went to a lecture 
uh, that Walter Mosley gave at a local college at the College of William and Mary oh, cool. in 2015. And um, he said one of the biggest pieces of advice as far as writing PI novels is that if you're going to write a first-person private investigator novel, you better have stuff for your investigator to do when you're not investigating because hmm. it's going to get real boring real quick. And so that was I, I took that advice. Okay, when he's he's got this case that he's doing, but when he's not doing his case, okay, he's got to go pick up some bodies because he works at a nurse at a funeral home. Yeah, and maybe one of the bodies he go picks up is at a nursing home, and you can add a little levity to that and a little humor to it by having a person you know be stuck in rigor mortis in <laughs> a sexual position, and so you get a little humor there. And then, <laughs> You know, you can also, you know, and that's kind yeah. of based on something that actually happened. But um, <laughs> as you can also add a little bit of uh, of the story detail because he has a little bit of flexibility of movement because he works at his funeral home. He knows a lot about bodies and crime and crime scenes because of his past work as a deputy. And so it, it just gave him a good supporting cast, I hope, and it gave him a good story, a good basis for the story. And, yeah, I think it, the biggest thing was I wanted to just stretch my wings and, and try to – it was kind of a challenge because I kind of, for years, I had been like, I can't do a book. I'm not going to write a book. I'm good at short stories. I'm stick with that. And then one day I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to try. <laughs> and I'm, like, I'm, like, I'm just going to see what happens. And you know, it, it, it it's you know, it's been a long, circuitous route, but um, luckily the right people got it and the right people saw it and it's and it's coming out. You know, my second book is based on um the short story Slant Six that they got the honorable mention in uh, Best American Mystery Stories. And that was pretty much the same thing. I felt like that character had a lot more to say, and that's more of a traditional crime story as opposed to a P.I. story. But again, that was a character I felt like I had more to say with him, yeah. and I kind of wanted to see where it went. So is, does Slit the Belly become like the first chapter of a longer thing, or did, did, does it end up sort of kind of, did you break it out and, and, and make it longer? I mean, how, when, when taking a short story to a novel, how, how did that work for you? Well, with like Slant Six, the, the character is uh, Beauregard uh, Montage, and, and and I I enjoyed writing about him. It was like it felt like if not the first chapter, it felt like the middle. Yeah. It felt like the middle of the book, and um, I was able to kind of build a biography about him in, in my head, and so it, it was like a a a, a, a a a signpost. I knew that if I could write the story, and then I got to that point where the short story takes place, then I can write the rest of the book. Hmm. So it's kind of the middle way of the of the book. And it was fun because I, that particular character, he just really resonated with me. Yeah. And I, I was very blessed that he resonated with, you know, some people. I mean, that you know, I didn't get the story in the Best American Mystery Stories, but John Sanford was the editor for that particular issue or that particular yeah, anthology. And yeah. the, fact that, the fact that he saw it and liked it enough to include it, well, that validated me. I was like, I can make a book out of this thing oh, yeah. because I like the character. And um, it was it was it was difficult though because then I had to sit down and kind of flesh him out and give him more of a backstory than what was expressed in the short story. But it all worked out in the end because he's also a different kind of character. He's a you know, and he's an African American man uh, who is being a criminal mm-hmm. and has kind of gained that life. So I'm using some classic or I guess a cliche tropes where he's gotten out of the criminal life, but now economic uh, reasons have forced him back into it. He has a mechanic shop that's going under his mom is in a nurse home that they're about to kick her out because of a clerical error with her Medicaid. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's got, he's got kids that want to go to college. Um, He's got a kid from a previous relationship that's just getting out of high school. And so he's got all these pressures on him. And so I wanted again to examine 
the plight of poverty from the African-American perspective um, in, in a rural setting. And, and, and kind of that, that's not, you don't see a lot of that. There have been a few, uh, you know, Attica Locke wrote a great book, Bluebird, Bluebird, which is a masterpiece huh. of, uh, of, rural, of rural crime and mystery. Um, and some other people have worked around that, the edges of that. And I kind of wanted to kind of mine that same territory because I didn't see anybody talking about that. There's a, I think there's a sentiment in some uh, avenues or some uh, halls of, of African-American literature that it, it's difficult for some people to write about the South hmm. because of everything, you know, of the pain, the racial disparity, the racial violence, the, you know, everything, the history of slavery, everything that comes along with it. And so I felt as a, as a, a black man who's a Southern writer, I felt kind of like, ah, this sounds real heady and kind of, uh, you know, uh, serious, but I kind of feel like it's my duty to write about that, you know, to kind of talk about that and yeah. express it in a way that maybe nobody else gets unless they live here, you know? And, um, and so the, the, the second book is a much more of a, of a, of a crime heist novel, but also an examination, I think of what it means to be a black man with a record in the South in 2017. And so the choices he makes, are directly influenced by, you know, his circumstances, but they're not always the best choices. Uh, you know, if he was making all the right choices, it wouldn't be much of a crime novel. So. But, that's, but that's exactly what, I mean, people, sh you know, should mind the experience and, and things like that. It's so not that people shouldn't try to stretch and write for things that, you know, and try to expand in areas that they haven't lived or things like that. But if you have this experience and this background and everything, then you should, I mean... It, it, it seems like the only thing that should, that would potentially stop you would be sort of, you know, trying to wrestle with such a huge, important, aggressive kind of topic. But I mean, if, you know, and obviously you're willing to devote the time to, to, to make this work. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's important that all these different voices kind of get heard and all the, you know, if there's not literature about something, then somebody who's lived it should write it. I mean, I think that's, it's, everything can't just be like New York set stories involving like blah, blah, blah. I mean, we need to have like all this, this mm -hmm. variety in there. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I I think that's much more personally. I think that's that's more worth reading than some of you know the other stuff that gets put out there. That's just sort of like okay, retread of serial killer plot number fifty nine thousand and eight hundred. You know. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think that you know there's you know there's a diversity, uh, you know, and, and and that's a kind of a buzzword now. But I think diversity includes racial diversity and geographic diversity. Oh, yeah. I, I said this to a to a friend of mine who's a writer from the South as well. And I said, you know, I write with a chip on my shoulder sometimes as a Southerner. I, I, because, you know, th th there's this, this this stereotypical idea, you know, yeah, we have William Faulkner and we have Eudora Welty, but then everybody else is, you know, chewing on hayseeds and, you know, banging their cousins. And, uh, it's not that you know, and there's this idea. <laughs> and I kind of, I kind of, you know, I can't say that that never happens. I mean, but at the same time, I think there's a huge wealth of knowledge and, and experience that could be mine from the South. And, and I said, you know, I'll be damned if I'm going to concede my Southern heritage to a bunch of Confederate apologists, you know, oh, that, that, yeah, that you don't own that. No, you know, you don't own that. You That's not just yours. And so I, I really feel, but at the end of the day, I also want to write really good, exciting and to a certain extent, fun stories. I mean, you know, you know, there's, there's good fight scenes in, in my darkest prayer. There's some, I hope titillating, sexual banter in my darkest <laughs> prayer and there's some good there's some good detective work i hope in in there i mean you know and and you know i i think uh with nathan with my darkest prayer he's not me 
mm-hmm. but he's my avatar turned up to 11. And nice. um, some of the things he says are things that I fully embrace. And some of the things he says are things that I may not fully embrace, but I understand where he's coming from. And, uh, you know, I think uh, at the end of the day, like, you know, it's like to address like the sexual stuff. He's not a Lothario. I, I had a publisher who previously turned down the book, not the, not the great folks at Entry Publishing. Yeah. A nice book. They were great guys. But I had a publisher turn down the book, and he, he was really complimentary. He's, you know, I love your writing. I love your dialogue. The characterizations are great. You know, you have a really good ear for dialogue and love the voice. He said, but there's an awful lot of violence and sex in this little small town, and I just don't buy it. Uh, and I was like, really? Really? You haven't lived in a small town. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, really? You know, there's not a, okay, dude. Yeah, there's, not a lot to, yeah. <laughs> there's not a lot to do on Friday nights except, you know, F, F, and D. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, it's like, like what rock are you doing? You know, so, exactly. And so, um, you know, but I wanted – I hope people take away from this. One big thing I want people to take away from it is that he's not a Lothario. He's not a forties or fifties private detective who's betting all these women. And he, you know, he understands that some of his promiscuity is an out is a cry for help. That he's damaged, yeah. you know, and I, I make direct references to it. Like, you know, you know, it's, it's growing up again, growing up in a small town, you go down the road, you drink, you loosen up your inhibitions and you kind of just want to hold somebody for like a couple hours and kind of forget about your problems. And he knows that very well. He's self-aware, and I hope that comes through that he's very self-aware. He's he's not a player, you know. If anything, he realizes it's a game, and that he you know that he's just trying to make himself feel better for a few hours. And if he can help somebody else feel better, that's cool too. And you know, I didn't want him to come off, and I hope he doesn't come off. He's definitely not a misogynist at all. And, and yeah. but he also is somebody who, you know, his promiscuity is kind of. It's hand in hand with his drinking. He likes to drink, but again, it's drinking is kind of numb. You know, and when you read the book, you realize what pain he's gone through and why he's trying to numb it so um, harshly and so completely. Yeah, no, I mean, but that's that, that's what we call a well-rounded character. You know, I mean, and I think that's great. I mean, you can, mm-hmm. I mean, people do like the escapist, you know, to the James Bondian sort of fantasy of like the detective or the secret agent or whoever who's like betting everyone in sight and like, Every mm-hmm. shot he fires is a headshot and blah de hoopla. But I mean, it's <laughs> you know I personally like reading like the the, the flawed characters, you know, and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's it's definitely it's it's a refreshing change. So so yeah, so um yeah, no, thank you for appearing. They um I'm, I'm really looking forward to my darkest prayer. And um, everybody who's listening, if you have not read Cosby short stories, you absolutely need to get on that immediately. So.